Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm super excited about our guest today. We have Yelena Zatulovsky. Wow, that's a hard name to wrap my mouth around. So, Yelena, welcome. We're so happy you're here with us. Thank you, Dr. McPherson. I'm really excited to be here with you. Oh, well, call me Lynn. So first, let's talk about all these initials after your name. I see your official title is the Vice President of Patient Experience for Seasons Healthcare Management, which is Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care. But what does this mean to be the Vice President of Patient Experience, and what do all these initials mean? <laughs> so my role is the Vice President of Patient Experience. So the Department of Patient Experience is really all of the psychosocial services that hospice offers. And so we offer, of course, social work services, chaplaincy or spiritual care services, volunteer services, um, bereavement services, and we also offer music therapy. And so I sort of oversee the programs around the psychosocial disciplines. So new education that might roll out or support to our patients and families and how do we bring them front and center. Okay, that sounds like it keeps you out of trouble, doesn't it? And by training, all these uh, credentials that you have here, you are a music therapist yourself, yes? Yes, I am. Okay, great. So let's focus on that. Let's start with talking to just some general conversation about music therapy. Um, I know not all hospices have music therapy, and you're very fortunate to have this with season. So if you had to, you know, name it, how would you describe what is music therapy? So, you know, I'm actually going to define it based on the American Music Therapy Association, and they define it as the clinical and evidence-based use of music interventions to accomplish individual goals within a therapeutic relationship. Um, And so really what they talk about is the idea that research in music therapy supports its efficacy in a wide variety of healthcare and education settings, and credentialed professionals have approved or completed an approved music therapy program to sort of retain this and and receive this education. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, there's a college degree in the loop here somewhere. Is that what I'm hearing? There is indeed a college degree. In fact, music therapists, Um, In order to even use the title of music therapy, it's protected um, in many states and actually federally. And so most music therapists have retained either a bachelor's degree in music therapy from an accredited or approved university or college or a master's degree in music therapy. And what does that really mean? Well, it means that we've really focused on curriculum in three very specific areas. So musical foundations, clinical foundations, which would be very similar to what Um, psychology students and social work students receive, and then the music therapy foundations and principles, so the integration between the two, and then we complete a minimum of 1,200 clinical hours, which is practicums and supervised internships before we sit for a board certification exam. Wow, that's a lot of time. That's half a year, right? A little over half of your 1,200 hours. It is, indeed. Mm-hmm. It is. So obviously, I think you've answered my question here. I mean, I play four musical instruments, the piano, the organ, the banjo, and the guitar when my nails are short, but that doesn't necessarily make me a music therapist, nor would it make someone who can has a pretty good singing voice, correct? 
Correct. But you're pretty close, Lynn. You couldn't be a music therapist. I might convert you today. There you um, go. But it's a great question because this is actually a real misconception about music therapy. So we have competencies like any other profession and discipline do. And in those competencies are the instruments that we have to or are mandated to complete. So there's the harmonic instruments. So we have to understand how to use the piano and the guitar in a clinical fashion and modify mm-hmm. music in a clinical fashion on both as, a harmonic, as harmonic instruments. Um, rhythmic instruments so that there's percussive qualities to the music and also the use of the voice which you already mentioned and Mm -hmm. there has to be a demonstrated proficiency to complete our education for any of these before we even sit for the board exam. Mm -hmm. I know that when I've talked to music therapists in the past and I ask the question, so what's the instrument you play? They all give me that look like, hello, my voice is my instrument. I know, I know your voice is your instrument but having said that, What musical instrument do most musical therapists bring to the bedside? I think um, it's variable based on the population and also which harmonic instrument you are most comfortable in. So my primary instrument is the piano, though I play other instruments as well, obviously the ones I have to play as a music therapist. But um, it's, it's... Usually at the bedside, for example, of a hospice patient, I know we're going to focus a little bit on pediatric patients today, but on a, at a hospice patient, very frequently you'd see the guitar just because it's a little bit more mobile, so the guitar and the voice, and, and possibly some small percussion instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are working in groups, chances are you're more likely to use a piano just because it's got that sort of grander sound, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit easier to pull more people together with one. We have a lady in Baltimore, I assume she's still working, who is a music therapist who was trained as an opera singer, and she plays the harp, which is a whole different sound than playing the guitar, I'm pretty sure. Yes, very different. And there are a lot of music therapists who use a different primary instrument. We have an incredible music therapist in one of our programs in the, in the West region whose primary instrument is trumpet, and he found a functional way and, and learned throughout his education, throughout his internship, how to clinically apply the trumpet to the bedside work with patients and families. That's interesting. I would expect that a trumpet blaring as you're dying would be a little jarring, but he's managed to pull that off, huh? But he really has. He really has managed to pull it off. And so he's, you know, when we think about some of our elderly patients and those who are losing their hearing or are more hard of hearing, the trumpet can actually be a really effective instrument, not to mention people from a a variety of different generation might appreciate sort of that big band sound, and a trumpet Mm -hmm. is really reminiscent of that. Well, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. So here's a question for you. What about people who are unconscious or cognitively impaired? I mean, do they really know what's cooking with the music therapy? Is it of any benefit, do you think? So I'd I'd love to address those unconscious, minimally conscious patients first. What we really know is that hearing is the first sense to develop in the womb, and it's also the last sense to be lost at the time of death. So Mm -hmm. when a board-certified music therapist or even a family member or friend speak or sing to a patient who's in an unresponsive state, often we'll see changes in their breath patterns and their blood pressure, even in some of their neurologic activity if they're, of course, connected to something that's a a machine that will demonstrate that. And research supports that, that once there's a connection made with that unconscious patient, you can actually see, we call it in music therapy, the idea of entrainment, being able to connect to something that they're putting out, whether it's emotional or physical, like breath patterns, for example, that once somebody connects to that in some way, shape, or form neurologically that 
they're able to sort of follow along and you can do a lot and mediate the body in a lot of different ways that way or the emotional states that way. Mm-hmm. And how about dementia patients? I've seen YouTube videos where someone with dementia seemingly is completely out of the loop and someone puts headphones on them and boy, they come alive. Do you really oh, see that really. in clinical practice? We absolutely see that in clinical practice. For patients with cognitive impairment, just like you mentioned with any form of dementia, it's really about diving more into the neurologic implications of music. And so we know that music is processed in both hemispheres of the brain. So language on one side, it's processed in several areas, but mainly in the left hemisphere, right? When we think about like brokers aphasia and things of that nature, that's, that's on the left. But music is often considered to be processed process, generally speaking, in the right hemisphere of the brain, thinking about, you know, things like creativity. That said, listening involves various memory centers in the brain, so things like the hippocampus or parts of the frontal lobe. And so when you tap along with music, um, and honestly, who doesn't like to let the music move us, right? Mm -hmm. You actually also involve the cerebellum. And so the reason that you start seeing Um, patients with various forms of dementia come alive or any kind of cognitive impairment come alive is because now you're tapping into the activity in various different areas of the brain. And so what what could have been, let's say, broken or or paralyzed at some point in time is now very high activity in those centers. And the music is stimulating it because there's an emotional attachment for most of us to, Mm -hmm. to music. That must be very comforting for the families. Oh, I would say so. It's really kind of amazing. There's a lot of things that we can do with, with patients with various forms of dementia. There's, there's two big ones. Most families, if we can't elicit a response, sometimes you can. I've seen many of those videos that you're, you're referring to where the patient would be very disconnected um, or very disengaged and then all of a sudden the music comes on and sometimes they'll even start singing along with you and you didn't even realize or you haven't heard them speak for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Other times the families will see them just be able to smile or or lift their eyes and make really purposeful eye contact. And so with those patients, music therapists might utilize different kinds of legacy initiatives, the idea of, you know, saving or capturing a moment or capturing a memory where they might actually record the heartbeat of a a patient with dementia who really can't speak in any way, shape, or form or can't really sing along anymore. And then they'll put that to the music that they've been playing to that person that's elicited that response. And so think about that daughter, for example, where she hasn't been able to connect to her mom and, you know, sort of that cycle of life in the womb she could hear her mother's heartbeat and nearing the end of her mother's life she hears that heartbeat again goodness you're gonna make me start crying here girl (laughs) i you know like dr russell hilliard always says if we can't make them cry we're not connecting to the emotional elements of what we do every day i think you're getting your job done here (laughs) when you think about um dr cicely saunders and her description of total pain meaning it's Mm -hmm. not just physical pain it's the psychological it's the spiritual the emotional and so forth does music affect all the quadrants of total pain Oh, absolutely. There's actually a really interesting, it's quite, a, quite an old study um, from the 60s done by Mel Wall about the idea of the, the gate control theory of pain. And music therapists employ that 
theory a lot. So this theory really proposes that there's sort of this um, neural gate, and I'm using quotes which you can't see obviously, um, that's present in the spinal cord which kind of opens and closes and it sort of modulates that perception of pain. And what they really share is that the stronger the stimulus or the earlier that the stimulus is initiated. So for example, let's say the music therapy interventions are initiated before wound care, for example, the more likely that stimulus will close the gates, so to speak, and limit the, neuron, the neuronal awareness or acuity that the patient might experience in terms of pain. So that's relating to physical pain. But we already know that in the brain there's the memory centers, the emotional centers, the connections. And so pain, music can really impact pain via distraction. It can impact pain via this idea of the gate control theory. It's, it's embedded in so many different areas and activates so many different areas of our brain, of our body, of our instinct, um, and of our spirit that it's really considered to be one of those really strong stimulus systems. Wow, wow. I can certainly relate because the gate control theory explains mm-hmm. also when you hit your funny bone after you've uh, uttered to your expletive of choice, you immediately <laughs> reach for it and start rubbing your funny bone. And that dilutes the pain message through the gate right. control theory. So there you go. Right. At least I can relate on that level. Well, let's turn our attention to music therapy with children. I never really thought about this at all. So, I mean, all I'm thinking is the wheels of the bus and, you know, we all love Barney. So <laughs> what are some of the benefits of music therapy? with a sick child? So I think there there are three really big pieces. I think, and I love that you use the idea of like Barney or the wheels on the bus, right? Even from very, very, very young ages, there's some sort of connection with music. We use music to teach young children. We use music to elicit excitement in young children. We use music to add to things like their meeting developmental milestones like learning objects permanence with young children. And I think that because it's so ingrained from the very beginning, music has a very strong impetus to make an effect change, especially when you've got a board-certified music therapist who's learned how to modulate that music. But there are two other very large benefits to the use of music with young children. Um, And I particularly have used music specifically with the old child, because that's my area of expertise is with pediatric end-of-life care, um, is the idea of children being silent sufferers. You know, in some generations, that's probably more prominent than it is in in today's age. But we still see this where there's a belief around the idea that children don't experience pain or don't know what's happening around them, for lack of a better way of saying this. And Mm -hmm. so the way the ability to impact or the ability to modulate music and music therapy interventions with children often will give them a voice that they haven't previously had. And I think that's really a huge benefit of using music therapy interventions with children. The mm-hmm. other is, is music is very easily modifiable. And so similar to hitting various developmental milestones for children, there are lots of ways to modulate music to make it more developmentally appropriate. It's more appropriate for a really young child to connect to the wheels on the bus. It's more appropriate for a teenager or an adolescent to connect to whatever it is, the music that they're listening to in this moment and genre that they're connected to. And so it really is very diverse and very much ingrained in almost every culture in the world. So you've got to really bring your A-game to have your range go from wheels on the bus to heavy metal, huh? Uh, or rap, yeah. Or, or I, rap. You know, I do, a, I do a mean rap 
with a lot of laughter around. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking we should do that in our next podcast. What do you think? <laughs> I think we should invite some so you, guests for that too. Yeah, oh, let's my do gosh, it. Start practicing. <laughs> so I'm curious, how would a board-certified music therapist, how do you even go about approaching a child who's critically ill? So ask is the first big thing, and it's kind of funny to say that, you know, asking the child, asking the parents, asking siblings, asking the people around. That's kind of universal for any clinician working with pediatric patients. Mm-hmm. For a music therapist, I think it opens a lot of doors. So, for example, I was, I was sitting with a 15-year-old girl once, and she was completely withdrawn and sort of, you know, it's up, it's that's totally appropriate for a teenager, right? Like, mm-hmm. what teenager isn't disengaged from the adults around them? Um, and she was kind of upset and, and distracted, and um, there were a number of adults in the room, including her parents. She was in the hospital. So I sat down next to her, and in the jumble of all of these things occurring in her room, I quietly asked her what kind of music um, she was listening to right now. That was it. Just what kind of music are you listening to right now? And I joked and I just said, you know, I, I needed to sort of up my cool factor. So you know how long ago this is because cool, it was still cool to say back then and it's not now. Um, so she smirked a little and then she had this little, you know, slight smile. So I could, I could tell that there was some connection or some rapport building with her. Uh-huh. But then she started sharing like a few of the bands, a few artists, followed by a few songs. And then she kind of, as she sort of kept going, and I did a lot of listening, right? Music is a lot about silence and capturing silence too. Mm -hmm. As I continued to listen to her, she remembered a really specific song that she listened to a lot um, Mm -hmm. in this period of time. And so I, I started thinking about an intervention music therapist employ, which is lyric analysis, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You look mm-hmm. at a set of lyrics and you start analyzing how that applies. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we listened to the recording, I was quietly reading along to the lyrics, so I pulled up both. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics were about death. They were particularly about the painful death of the subject in this song or the person in this song. And when we finished listening to it, she was kind of expecting me. You know, there was definitely some fun and colorful language in the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think she was expecting me to have a very strong reaction, which I didn't have. The, the music was actually rather beautiful. And, of course, mm-hmm. understanding what the music was about really brought on some thoughts for me as a clinician. Mm-hmm. So I pointed to a couple of lines of to her. I didn't even say them out loud. I just sort of turned the um, computer I was using at the time. And she began, began to cry and said that while she'd been sort of living, where she considered herself living at the hospital, she'd been watching her friends here die. Oh, God. And so with a little bit of prompting and rewriting of the lyrics in that moment, she eventually started to divulge this feeling of guilt that she was the one who was surviving all of that. Oh, my goodness. And why did she, why did she deserve this and why didn't they? Because they were all these amazing people. And so what we spent in our next sessions over many, many, many months was rewriting lyrics and recording some of her favorite songs. But when we looked at the lyrics and what we focused them on, each of the songs that we rewrote were lyrics about the story of one of these friends from their perspective that had died. And so she somehow found this great comfort in now carrying their legacies and stories. And I think that's really what, you know, a a board-certified music therapist who's looking for those cues can do. And for her, Mm -hmm. that relinquished a lot of that guilt around being the survivor because it gave a sense of purpose if she did survive them. 
Wow. Did that turn into a legacy project for either that girl or the other patients? It, well, so the other patients that we wrote about were children who had died. And right. so it did, it turned into both. That's a great question. It turned into both. Yeah. Um, she ended up gifting each of the songs she had written for the children that had died to their families. Oh, my goodness. Um, at, around the anniversary of their deaths because she just, she would never forget that, right? She was one of the few survivors on that floor and all those kids had gone through chemo and radiation and treatments together. And so being the one that's sort of surviving last, you remember a lot of those sort of anniversaries and, and important dates. What inevitably also happened was she did die. And so this also became the legacy project for her family, which started the process of her siblings doing the same for her. And that oh, began the bereavement process with them. And so oh. that sort of cycle continues. That is so powerful. It really is. It is. So if you had to say, what do you think are the most important imperative aspects of working with an ill child, and how would the board-certified music therapist live up to those imperatives? So I think there's two really big things that happen, and I think this is, again, it's kind of hard sometimes to say, well, why music therapy versus a different discipline? And I actually would never say that. I think any anybody who works with pediatric patients has to have some of the same same skill set, you know, in their in their bag or, or pocket of tricks, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are two very big things. So children obviously don't have, children under a certain age don't have a legal voice regarding their medical decisions. So one of the biggest imperative aspects of working with any old child is the idea of a sense and giving them that voice to really express their approval or agreement or opportunity to state their own wishes and the course of what things will happen, which of course requires the consent of working with their parents or guardians. Mm -hmm. The other secondary really big piece of working with children, especially um, in end-of-life care, is the idea of the locus of control, which is really the belief that the child has the ability to, or how the child believes they have the ability to master their environment. So an external locus of control is believing that whatever happens in their lives is out of their hands. That's true for older children, like the tweens, teens, those moving into sort of that, sometimes those moving into a transition of adulthood, though that's sort of when it starts to circle back to what could be an internal locus of control, which is presuming that their actions consequently determine life events. So a really young child doesn't understand that mommy got sick because because there was, I don't know, a genetic predisposition to it, for example, right? They sometimes assume, I, I said to my mommy that I hate her and now she's sick and it's my fault. That's an oh. internal locus of control. So a, a board-certified music therapist thinking about how that locus of control is impacted and utilizing some of these various songwriting or lyric analysis we talked about, um, or even just music listening or music participation. I used to have a song sheet of all sorts of different kinds of music, and I just had the titles on purpose, and I wouldn't let the kids sort of look through the kids who could read, look through the rest of the book for the actual lyrics, which I would share with them. I just wanted them to pick songs from the title. It was really kind of amazing how themes would emerge from that. So utilizing some of those kinds of interventions, you can really start focusing in on how does this child perceive themselves in this world and how much control does this child perceive they have and then work from that as the foundation. 
Wow, that's amazing. So just as we spoke with adults about the total pain picture, can a board-certified music therapist really parse out with a child, like interventions to improve their quality of life or pain management or symptom management or an emotional pain? How do you go about doing that? So again, we come back to that let's ask, let's ask, let's ask. And so I have this great story. Um, I was with a social worker and we were visiting one of our pediatric hospice patients who I believe at the time was seven, maybe eight. And so we just asked him, what would you tell a staff member that's going to work with a kid like you? Right? We, we were asking. We were curious. We wanted to get to know him, build some rapport. And so he actually responded to first, and so he says he a lot, and we could see, like, I, I, I'm trying to, I'm going to try and describe what he looked like, but every time he said he, he sort of had a coy um, tone in his voice, and, like, he changed his body language to insinuate that he was talking about himself, even though he was trying to talk about other children. Um, but he responded, you know, first you need to ask them their hobbies and interests. If he likes video games, you might want to play. If he has other interests like food, you might want to talk to him about it. Then when he's comfortable, you can ask him his fears and concerns, but only when he's comfortable with you. You might also want to ask if he has any pain. So, Lynn, you know, what do you hear in that? Like, to me, what becomes apparent is where his priorities are, right? Where his priorities lie. For an adult, they often list pain and comfort likely first or second on their list, or early on anyways. But for him, it was more about connecting to his identity, his interests, the things that made him him, the things that made him the, the little boy that he was outside of the sick boy that he was, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what was really motivating for him. And so I think he did offer up the fact that pain could be addressed, but he offered up the distractions first. And so I think when we ask and we listen to that answer as music therapists, often the child will respond with the answer to what that distraction may actually be. Hmm. Interesting. That's very interesting. But we've been talking about children, but, you know, in hospice, we emphasize that the unit of care is the patient and the family. And mm-hmm. I, I really feel that very keenly as we talk about pediatrics because often the parents are the only ones who can really give you this 411 on what's going on. So how do music therapists consider the wants, the needs, the desires of the whole unit of care, including the family? Yeah, that's a great question. I think also when we talk about children, oftentimes we're talking about siblings too. And when we talk about children as silent sufferers, that includes the siblings and the family too. But you're right, the parents or the guardians are often the gatekeepers to these kids, mm-hmm. right? Um, they watch them. They know their little cues. They, they know the little things for however old that child may be and however long they've been in their lives. They know all the little nitty-gritty pieces about what that child needs, wants, how they respond to things. And what a music therapist's role is, like any clinician, is really to get to that nitty-gritty with them and to open up the doorway. Most parents put up a lot of barriers in terms of communication. There's a fear about talking to this child beyond what they're able to understand or, or a fear about being able to manipulate or um, utilize language that is really developmentally appropriate. Often that fear is, I don't know how to talk to them and I don't know how to communicate, help me. And so I will often take that barrier as 
um, a very positive challenge for me, I will offer up to the parents two very big things. The first is I will follow the lead of your child and I will love on them. And the second is that I will not share anything that the parent is uncomfortable with me sharing, but I have one fundamental rule, which is I will not lie to your child. And so if a child directly asks me a question, then I will answer it in the most developmentally appropriate way. And then I will share that with the parent if, for example, they're not in the room at the time. Often parents, after a visit, or sometimes even in the first 10 minutes of a visit, if they can see that their child is connected, they take that opportunity for that break because they they feel a sense of trust in the clinician. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll, I'll often use you know, I'll bring that back to the parent and then we'll work through how do we address this now, mm-hmm. right? What do we do next? Because for kids, they're very concrete. They don't need like adults, um, especially young children, they don't ask a question and then continually ask more deeper and deeper questions. If, they, if you tell them that you're going to give them a needle, they really want the concrete answers. I want to know how long it's going to take. I want to know what it's going to feel like. Don't lie to me and tell me it's not going to hurt. It's going to hurt, right? I want to know all of those little pieces. But then they sort of move on and say, okay, when can I play my game? Right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, it's very limit for that, limited for them. They're, they're able to move forward to the next thing that's about that identity that that seven-year-old boy talked about for us. And well, what so if a child parents, says, am I going to die? I, and so that's a question that I usually turn around to a child. That's a great question. I usually ask them, what do you think? The same way I would with an adult. What, what's happening, what's prompting you to ask this question? What's happening in your body? And if I'm hearing a lot of themes about death or support or a lack of that, I often will reach out to the parents before knowing that that child is coming to the point of trusting me enough to ask me boldly, am I going to die? So wow. that we can prepare together. Um, I have a great example of a a child that was on service, she was a tween, 12, and her parents, she had a a glioblastoma, and her parents had told me when I called them to do an assessment, they were at home, um, that she didn't know anything that was going on. And I, I'm not going to use the expletive, but I basically called on that, right? I was like, no way. I didn't say it on the phone to them because I wanted to build and get into the door. But um, when I got into the door with them, they... I said, okay, and so I asked her, I said, is it okay if she tells me the story of what's been happening with her, how sick she is, whatever, and mom stayed in the room with me and they gave me full permission, so she did, and then all of a sudden she gives me every minute, every detail, every date, everything that specifically happened to her, and so we know, how, we know and recognize that she knows a lot, and I watch the mother's face change, and I'm observing her behavior, and what I see changing is from the barrier to I don't know how to talk to my daughter about the fact that she's on hospice and she's going to die. And so I did the very similar technique. What music are you listening to right now, right? Tweens, teens, they don't like to talk. That's that's no spoiler alert for this group. Um, And I asked her the same thing, and she shared a a really sort of very um, strong song that had, it was very prominent at the time, and it was really about the idea of just wanting people to hold her hand. And, and there were themes in the music around the idea that the nights are getting darker, that it, it's harder to connect, that really all she wants are the people around her to hold her hand. And that sort of came up and up, and that 
continued, that became sort of the basis of every visit. But it also gave me that opening to the mom to say, do you really believe that your daughter doesn't know? Because this is what's coming up. And mom said, no, I know she knows. I just don't know what to do next. And so we developed an entire plan around how we could support those parents to supporting those children while we also simultaneously supported and modeled that behavior as an entire team, not just me as the music therapist. She just happened to connect the music phone. Do you ever, like, record a song for the parents to use when you're not there so they can continue connecting? Lullabies. A lot of lullabies, but, you know, when you think about pain in music therapy, we think a lot about lullabies. Lullabies have that, you know, triple meter in them, right? The dun, 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 dun. Yeah. So it's got a very lulling quality. That's why they're effective. And so we do a lot of lullabies with the kids. Sometimes it's lullabies that they're familiar with. Sometimes it's... Um, it's lullabies that they've wanted to write for themselves or others. And often I will encourage the child to sing along as much as I can, the siblings to sing along as much as I can, because what we notice is between those visits, it's not just the parents using these lullabies or the music that's been recorded with the sick child, but it's everybody in the family that wants to utilize it. Or the sick child themselves saying, I'm actually feeling some pain, but I really want to play with my brother, and I really don't want to be sleepy. And so I want to listen to that and I want to lie down with brother first and then I want to play with him and if my pain doesn't go away then you can give me my medicine or whatever. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. wow. Do you get a lot of requests for the fight song? Um, These days we do although you know what that's been replaced by a lot of other songs. (laughs) They move too fast these days. (laughs) You know, keeping up with the top ten is is really problematic for the music therapist. (laughs) And I can't oh, well. imagine what they will be like, you know, our generations to come in the future. Oh, so, my goodness. Especially well, when you think last... about the language barriers, too, right? I'm because sorry, we can sing it, Especially when you think about language barriers, too. Oh, yeah. You know, we can sing in any language, right? So keeping up with the top ten in whatever language we're thinking about, well, that's a whole other. Oh, my goodness. You've got to be on your toes all the time. <laughs> I guess the last question I would have is, uh, I know that, you know, Seasons is quite large, so I, I know we have uh, programs where there's a fairly robust pediatric population, but most hospices might have one or two pediatric patients a year, for example. So what would be one thing that you think every clinician should take away from this conversation that they can use in caring for a pediatric patient? So I will, I will share the story of Johnny with you, um, and I'll keep it brief, and you might want to grab your Kleenexes. Oh, but no. It's, he's, he's, he's one of the greatest, one of the greatest lessons I learned in terms of humility and passion and understanding really came from this four-year-old boy who we're going to call Johnny today. So he just taught me lesson after lesson about how much children observe and respond to their environment, right? We, we don't give them enough credit for that sometimes, but they really do observe and respond to everything about how much our emotional energy impacts theirs, even beyond babies. We know that's true for babies. But the, when you're dealing with a sick child or when you're working with a sick child, our energy is also something that they carry with them, right? That external source, they carry that. And then how often their, their voices get unnoticed. Remember, we're talking about Johnny, who's four at this time. Um, and about their maturity and understanding what, because they're ill. So in Johnny's scenario, his parents got really bad news this morning that 
there really were only comfort measures that could be done at this point in time. There were no other treatments, medical treatments, that could be um, utilized for him. And so they were, the clinicians, the doctors, were really starting to prepare them for the end-of-life journey that they were about to embark upon. Mm-hmm. And so they were very withdrawn from Johnny, as you can imagine. They were beside themselves. I, I can't even imagine what that would feel like um, as a parent. And I came to see Johnny at my usually scheduled time because that was his, you know, he, he was in control and that was his, you know, his Monday at this particular time, Elena has to come and I get to tell who gets to stay in the room. I get to tell Elena what instruments we're using. I get to tell Elena everything. So this was his, his um, having control over his own environment. And so I came at that time and I noticed and I already knew the doctors had given me a heads up about what was happening. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I sat down and, and started working with Johnny as, as was generally the norm. There were some whispers in the room. And then at one point in time, his mother just burst into these very um, painful um, tears, which were, of course, expected. And she called out and she just said to me, I don't know how you can do this, Yelena. This, this, your heart must break every single day. And here's this four-year-old Johnny and all his wisdom and glory, and he looks up and he says to her, Mommy, of course her heart breaks every day. It breaks every day that she sees another child like me who's going to die. Oh, my God. And every time there's a crack in her heart from every child that dies or every child that she loves, it makes more room for her to love the next child and the next child and the next child. Mm. So for me, oh, I almost made myself cry, Lynn. <laughs> for me, that, that's the, the memory for me, right? That, that's, that's the note. It's, it's how much these children observe and understand and how imperative it is, irrespective of their age, for us to find a way to give that, their voice, to raise their voices up in some way, shape, or form, whatever is appropriate in their culture, belief system, or family unit, and whatever, in whatever way that will honor and allow those children and their families and their parents and their siblings and their friends to create those connections and memories for as long as they are on this earth. Oh, well, goodness gracious, you are a special person, my friend. Are there any last comments you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap this up? Don't be afraid of working with children. They're amazing. They're insightful. Um, and they deserve all that you can give them, and you deserve all that they can give you. Absolutely, even if it does break your heart, right? Even if it does break your heart, yeah. Absolutely. Well, we've been chat- chatting with L- L- <laughs> Yelena Zatulovsky. Wow, I wish her name was Smith here. Right now you've got me all discombobulated. <laughs> she is the Vice President of Patient Experience with Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care. Uh, again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2018, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificates in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate dot umaryland dot edu forward slash palliative thank you